0: You're listening to the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, Episode 2. This week I'm speaking with Matthew Podolsky of Wild Lens. He co-founded Wild Lens in 2011 with the goal to bring biologists and filmmakers together to produce films that would have an impact on critically important wildlife conservation issues. Matthew began full-scale production of his first feature-length film, Scavenger Hunt, immediately after the inception of Wild Lens. Since then, Matthew co-directed and produced the Emmy-nominated Wild Lens film, Bluebird Man, and has produced numerous short films for the Eyes on Conservation series. Matthew also serves as host and producer of the Eyes on Conservation podcast, a weekly interview series featuring top scientists and filmmakers from around the globe. After graduating from Ithaca College with degrees in both environmental science and cinema and photography, Matthew began a career as a field biologist. After working jobs in upstate New York, California and Jamaica, Matthew was offered a job working with the endangered California condor in the remote desert in northern Arizona. It was this landscape that reignited his passion for filmmaking and storytelling. And he began shooting for his film Scavenger Hunt just one year after arriving in Arizona. And I was lucky enough to sit down with Matthew and interview him at the 39th International Wildlife Film Festival in Missoula, Montana, where he was one of the judges. Matthew, thank you for coming along and agreeing to be on the show this week. But I think we'll just start off by asking you just to describe a bit about what you do, your kind of primary focus in terms of filmmaking.
1: Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think of myself as as a wildlife filmmaker. Um, but obviously, I mean, I, don't, I, I think these days, uh, most filmmakers are forced to be sort of a jack of all trades, right? So when I say I'm a wildlife filmmaker, you know, that means that there is, uh, there are a whole lot of things that I do. <laughs> um, so, uh, I, I mean, I guess the first thing I would say is that I help run a nonprofit. I'm the president of the board of directors of a nonprofit production company called wild lens. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, just sort of administrative tasks associated with that, um, in and of itself, uh, running a business. Um, you know, I'm I'm also a documentary filmmaker. Um, I've produced two uh, longer form uh, documentaries: um, one about the California condor and the issue of lead poisoning from spent ammunition, um, and uh, a half hour documentary called Bluebird Man, um, which is sort of about citizen science and the impact that uh, citizen science can have on bird populations. Um, in addition to that, I also produce a, uh, a documentary web series called Eyes on Conservation. So I sort of oversee this process um, of sort of facilitating the release of a new short documentary in sort of the four to five minute range each month on that platform. You know, some of those films are films that I shoot and produce and direct myself. Some of them, I'm just sort of overseeing the process of uh, uh, of, of production. Um, I'm also the host of my own podcast series that's also um, called Eyes on Conservation. So um, it's a weekly interview series uh, focused on uh, conservation and research and also
0: filmmaking. So you're a busy man, right? You're doing it. You've got your fingers in a lot of pies. What influenced you in the first place to become a filmmaker, to take this road that is you know, very uncertain at times? What, what was your main influence?
1: Well, I mean, I've always been really interested in storytelling. Um, But, you know, so I, 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 you know, sort of my... um educational background is you know I went to undergrad and I got two degrees I got a degree in environmental science um, and I got a degree in cinema and photography but with a focus on screenwriting so I mean my initial sort of foray into storytelling um, as a filmmaker was on the writing side like writing fiction films Um, but when I graduated you know I basically came to realize that I had no interest in Moving to LA and joining that whole world, um, so I started working as a biologist, and I used that background I had, um, and and you know I got to travel to a whole bunch of really amazing places, you know, doing bird research, um, and I landed um, in northern Arizona, um, in this really remote corner of the desert Southwest, uh, working with California condors as a condor biologist. Um, and I spent two years working down there just sort of tracking condors. They all have radio telemetry equipment. So I was sort of doing this research and tracking these condors around. Um, and it was, it was really amazing. Um, but, you know, I, I basically got one year into that job um, and realized that I was at the center of this really fascinating, crazy story um, that was going on with California condors. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the story was focused, you know, in my mind, the way I wanted to tell it at least was focused on this conservation issue that California condors were dealing with, um, this issue of lead poisoning from spent ammunition. So um, basically, you know, you have this condor population, this species that has had this really amazing, dramatic recovery, you know, got down to 22 individual birds, um, you know, through this really intensive captive breeding effort. Um, the population was able to recover to the point where there's, you know, now over 400 birds, um, but the population is still not self-sustaining, and uh, the reason for that is this issue of lead poisoning from uh, spent rifle ammunition. Um, So, I mean, I guess to answer your question, (laughs) um, to answer your question, I mean, that is what inspired me to become a documentary filmmaker, is seeing that story play out firsthand and being a part of it and just wanting to do more right? Like, I wanted to do more than just the daily work of the biologist. I wanted to do more than just, like, maintain the sort of status quo of this population of condors. I wanted to take this message, what I was seeing and what I learned about lead poisoning from ammunition and how serious this issue was for condors, but not just condors, other scavengers, and I wanted to share that with a much wider audience. Um, and, And, I mean, that's what inspired me to um, to start shooting for my first film, which, you know, snowballed, um, to the point where, you know, a couple of years after I started shooting for that, I, um, founded Wild Lens, this company, and, you know, went through the process of sort of finishing that film and, you know, getting it to a point where I, I was ready to release it, I
0: guess. So, I mean, that, that's a fascinating story, and I think um, it just goes to show how, really, uh, us as filmmakers, we, we can come from anywhere. You know, we get inspired, and we can really uh, change our careers and move into filmmaking from wh- wherever we've come from. And, and we never know where that inspiration's going to come from, and, and uh, that's pretty unique. So... Tell us about some of the challenges that you've faced on your on the way up. Um, I mean, as a filmmaker, we, there's always challenges, right? I mean it's uh, every shoot we would ever go on, there's something you have to overcome. H- have there been any major challenges that have really kind of uh, been hard to overcome as a filmmaker and uh, and how have you overcome those?
1: Well, as much as I hate to sort of list this as, uh, you know, my number one sort of obstacle or, uh, you know, problem that I've had to overcome. Um, I mean, it, it's funding. Um, you know, that, that was without a doubt, you know, sort of the biggest struggle for me starting off. Um, you know, I, I spent two years, you know, shooting for my first film, um, without spending really any money, I mean, just the minimal amount of equipment I spent on on the gear that I had. Um, but then, you know, I, I sort of reached this critical stage where, you know, I'm like, all right, if I'm really going to finish this thing and do it the way I want to do it, so it's going to have an impact, then like, I got to raise some money, you know, to make it happen, um, which is what, you know, inspired me to start my nonprofit, Wild Lens, um, and, and, and start a, a fundraising campaign to, to raise the money to do that. But Um, You know, I had a little bit of a background in filmmaking. I wasn't going into that totally out of the blue, Um, but I knew nothing about raising money, you know? (laughs) And all of a sudden, I'm not just a filmmaker, but I'm, you know, the director of this nonprofit and, you know, the guy who's in charge of raising the money for this project. Um, And I I continue to struggle with that, you know? And, um, you know, that sort of, you know, small donations um, from individuals is is still a a really important funding source for for our nonprofit. so i mean that is still something i struggle with that's something i think about every single day is like what other you know sources of of revenue can i can i bring in to the organization and how can i get creative about raising money for these projects um and and trying to come up with ways outside of just sort of you know the foundation of of what we do which is you know small donations from uh groups of people So,
0: I mean, there are certainly other challenges, but... uh. Funding, big elephant in the room. That's the one thing we all think about, first of all, when we're trying to get a film off the ground, a documentary, a web series. It it doesn't matter what it is. Uh, We're always thinking, how can I make this possible? And even with passion projects, you know, it's still your time. You've still got to somehow pay the bills and make it work. And I know... Through my career, I've, I've done many, many different jobs, um, it, it, still filming, but gone out into the commercial world and made money to be able to do the passion projects. So just um, I, you gave some examples there, just a little bit more in depth. It, let, let's uh, take an example of some of your work, say uh, um, your, the, the lead poisoning uh, film documentary that you made. Just explain a bit more about the funding for that particular one. How did you source some of the funds to make that initially?
1: Well, man, I don't know. The <laughs> my first film was was a mess as far as funding. You know, um, we we uh, you know, as a board of directors, like we thought about you know, uh, sort of experimenting with one of these Kickstarter type platforms. We ultimately decided to run our fundraising campaign for that film. That's it's called Scavenger Hunt. That was the name of the film. Um, we ultimately decided to to sort of run. A fundraising campaign modeled after some of these crowdsource platforms, but to do it ourselves um, and to do it sort of internally, um, which you know, for my next film, we—I I, I don't know—I I think we learned a lot of lessons, you know, um, as an organization um, raising the money for Scavenger Hunt, that first film, um, and when we came back to make our second film, Bluebird Man, um, we did a lot of things differently. Um, and it was a much overall, much more successful fundraising process. Um, I mean, I'll just, I'll just list a few of the things that, that I think are really important that I think we learned um, through that process and going from my first film into the second. Um, the first one is that the very first thing we did um, once we developed the concept for our film, Blooberman, is um, me and my uh, uh, co-producer colleague, um, went to, uh, we had some contacts at Idaho Public Television, our local PBS affiliate station. Um, and we went in and pitched them the film and got them to sign a a letter of commitment to broadcast. Um, so before we had raised any money, shot a single frame for this piece, we had a committed distribution outlet. Um, and this is a local film, right? I mean, a film of locally focused. So, I mean, you know, there was some thought process behind that. Like, you know, we, we, we identified our target audience for this film which we saw just generally is like people in Idaho who are interested in exploring the outdoors and learning about birds and and bluebirds specifically because the mountain bluebird is the state bird for Idaho so Idaho Public Television was you know a perfect outlet for that perfect sort of target um, group Um, and yeah we had a letter commitment to broadcast before we had raised any money before we would shot anything so that was huge that, was, that helped a lot in the fundraising process. Um, the second thing we did is we, we launched a, a Kickstarter campaign. We shot just enough footage to cut together like a nice trailer, um, and we ran a Kickstarter campaign to get that seed money. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, I mean, everybody talks, every filmmaker talks a lot about these crowdsource campaigns in Kickstarter, and, you know, that's one of the questions that I get most from new filmmakers is, you know, how do you run a Kickstarter campaign? Um... You know, I think that, and I don't even know if, I don't know if you want to get into that because we could talk about that for a whole hour or more, um, but I'll say that like one of the, um, one of the benefits that comes with running, uh, re- I mean, regardless of whether or not you're using Kickstarter or one of these crowdsource platforms, um, there is a huge benefit to talking about your project and getting the word out about what you're doing right from the inception Of your project Um, and that's a mistake that we made on on my first film you know we were nervous about sort of sharing the content um, or sort of really talking too much about the project until we had our final polished cut of the film ready to release and you just can't... You can't produce a film that way. You can't raise money that way, you know? You can't hold back. You can't hold on to those best shots. Like, when you get it, you got to share it, you know? Um, if you have a short little, you know, uh, 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 a teaser or trailer you cut together, like, even if it's not perfect, like, get it out, you know? You've got to do whatever you can to get the word out. And, you know, like I said, you know, we, we launched that Kickstarter campaign for Booboo Man right at the beginning of the process. Um, and, you know, I, I think... One of the benefits that that folks who maybe haven't you know, run a crowdsource campaign before don't think about is that, you know, in order to successfully run a campaign like that, you are you are required to spend an entire month doing nothing but promoting your project and the side benefits that come along with that, you know, beyond the funding that you get are enormous you know um i mean we had uh you know and and you know i don't know delving just a little bit into like strategies for crowdsource uh uh, fundraising um you know that first wave like the first people who are going to donate to your campaign are you know people who know you your friends your family people who've donated to past projects of yours you know i mean that's you know, the easy money, right? Um, but once you get this sort of critical mass, and you start building some momentum behind the campaign, then you start, you know, if you're doing it well, if you're running this campaign well, and it looks good, and um, you start to get this sort of critical mass, and you start to get donations coming in from, like, people you don't expect, right? Um, and, you know, we had this experience with both of the Kickstarter campaigns that we've run, um, where, you know, in that final week, like, you start you know, like money starts coming in, you're like, wow, like, wow, oh, like, where did this come from? How did these people find out about our project, you know? Like for Bluebird Man, in, in the final week um, of the campaign, we were very close to meeting our goal, and the donation that pushed us, you know, up, uh, uh, you know, beyond our goal, um, which, you know, for Kickstarter, that platform, that means you are guaranteed to get the money right until you hit that goal, until you hit that target, you know, um, you know, there's no guarantee you're going to get any of that money. Um, So that's like a big deal, right? And we were very close, and the donation that pushed pushed us over the edge was a $1,000 pledge from the Idaho Department of Tourism. You know, we didn't didn't even know how they'd found out about it, you know? Um, So, I mean, you start to see cool, unexpected things like that that are a product of um, the fact that you've spent a month just doing nothing but like send emails out to people and talk about this project and you know send out press releases and all this stuff um, and then of course that the fact that you know the D- Idaho Department of Tourism made this contribution to our Kickstarter campaign like they're now invested in it right and they helped us throughout the process of promoting the project and we re- when we reached distribution like you know that relationship w- was really important to us so
0: I mean, that's fantastic. Crowdsourcing is one of those big, big questions I get a lot as well. And uh, it does seem to be a bit of a minefield because uh, it, you know, people assume they have to have this large following to be able to start crowdfunding. And you know they've got to then hit up all those people for it. But actually, um, really, it's about marketing. You know, You've got to get out there and build that list in the first place regardless. But then, of course, the payoff is that you have a list. And so when you get on to move on to other works you can then, uh, uh, you know, um, market straight to those people, which is fantastic, and they already know your work. So um, let's get on a little bit about gear, because gear is another one of those big questions, you know, which camera should I buy? What camera's best for this? You know, it's one of those uh, minefield areas again. You know, gear envy takes over a lot of newbie filmmakers. Um, you watch a documentary, you read a bit about it, the behind the scenes, what camera they used. Suddenly, you think you've got to go and spend 15 grand on a new camera. Uh, and of course, if you do that, you've got to go and spend another 10 grand on accessories, which people don't realize. So, um, tell me a bit about your preferred gear list. I'm sure you've used a lot of gear. What, what would you ideally like to be in the field with, and what, what do you go out into the field with filming?
1: You know the gear question. I get that question a lot too, and you know I'll just start off by saying that it really doesn't matter that much what you're shooting on. Um, I don't care what kind of film it is. I mean, you know, obviously if you're making wildlife films, like you got to find a way to get up close to those animals to get that footage that you want to sort of show the behavior or whatever you're trying to sort of portray. Um, but there are so many creative ways to do that in, in a very, in ver- a very, very inexpensive way. Um, so I mean, when when folks ask me that question, I I turn around and ask them like, what what do you have already? You know, what what can you use to shoot that you don't have to spend any money on, right? And almost everybody that I you know, when I turn that back around, them almost everybody says, oh well, I have a DSLR. I say, okay, that's your camera. You know, um, as far as like my personal preference, I mean, I shot um, I shot my last film Bluebird Man on a Panasonic GH three. Um, which is one of these mirrorless system cameras? Um, you know, now they have the GH four, four K. I haven't, I haven't upgraded to four K quite yet. Um, you know, I, I think it, in in I think it's one of those instances where like the the, the camera, the the technology for actually viewing footage in four K has not caught up with the technology to capture footage in four K. And until, you know, it, it, until that catches up, I really don't see the need to sort of upgrade my equipment to 4K. Um, you know, I, I, I guess the other thing I'll say is that I think audio quality is more important than video quality. I think it's, it's, it's relatively easy to get away with um, lower quality video if you're telling a good story. But you need high quality audio. You have to be able to hear what your character is saying and it has to be crisp and clean. Um, that is so much more important in my mind than um, the, the, you know, the, the quality of the image itself. Um, I mean, you know, we're here at International Wildlife Film Festival. I mean, um, a lot of the films, a lot of sort of the blue chip documentary films. I mean, these are films with, you know, enormous budgets. Um, uh, well, I mean, enormous budgets compared to like what a lot of independent filmmakers are, are, are making films with. Um, but there are also films that are very, very focused on getting like, just these amazing, you know, super high-quality images of of wildlife. Um, But then you also have films like um, the film we saw last night, the new Josh Fox film, um, How to Let Go of the World. And, I mean, there is grainy footage in there. There's lots and lots of shaky, shaky camera work. Um, It is not, you know, and and you see the camera he's using. I don't don't even know, like, what camera, but it's not a super expensive camera. Um, You know, there is not much focus on, you know, capturing this super high-quality image um, or using the best equipment. It's all about good storytelling. Um, And I don't think anybody in that theater that was watching that film last night is, you know, going to walk away complaining about, like, oh, he wasn't using the best, like, camera technology to shoot. Like, no, he had a really compelling story, and nobody noticed, you know, except maybe, oh, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people notice because there's a lot of filmmakers in the room, right? And, like, me, like, I pay attention, that kind of thing. But, like, it does not detract from the story.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, the when you have a great story, as you say, you can get away with it. Audio is one of the most overlooked, and, and yeah, with Josh Fox, he's he's obviously picked his style. He's using an older camera for sure. I think it was a Panasonic HPX one seventy something like that, um, and. You know, that's his style. He's picked that, and he's going with it, and he's relying on his story, and it's a great story. Um, but very much agree with you on the audio. Uh, one of those things where people will put all their money into their camera gear, not thinking thinking that they, the onboard mic is going to be all they need to get audio, and, uh, of course, that's a big, big downfall when it comes to uh, to getting anything usable, and it's awful. Uh, I'm sure we've all been there. You're in the editing room, and you've got some audio that sucks really badly, (laughs) and there's nothing you can do. I mean, there's nothing unless you're going to swap out the image and, and start again, so... Now, now, you uh, your web series. Let's talk a bit, a little bit about that. And I had a quick look at it, and um, I'm definitely going to go back and check more out. And it looks to me that you have um, a, a bunch of stuff on there that's been produced by other people. Can you tell me a bit about your format of the web series and and how that works?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We rely. Pretty heavily on uh, volunteers out in the field, researchers and biologists who have an interest in storytelling and who are interested in learning about the process um, and who are literally on the front lines of these conservation issues and you know have the ability to capture really amazing footage just because they're there every single day doing the work um, so you know we have basically like a submission process um, for individuals and/ or organizations. To uh, basically like send us you know uh, footage and sort of pitch a story to us, um, and we'll sort of greenlight you know a, a certain number of projects like that in any given year, um, and you know basically just uh, uh, sort of agree to collaborate um, with these uh, sort of biologists slash filmmakers um, to to put you know put together interesting stories about the work that they're doing. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's one component of it, you know, and, and uh, sort of uh, part of that approach, you know, part of our idea in sort of uh, accepting submissions like that um, from biologists and aspiring filmmakers is, you know, we're trying to bring more producers on board, you know, and some of those uh, uh, aspiring filmmakers and biologists... Um, Get really into it right and sort of catch this filmmaking bug and want to keep producing stuff for us um and so you know that's sort of how we're building our team of producers on the series um and then you know so at this point you know it's not just me responsible for producing episodes for our eyes on conservation series it's a network of producers and that way if you know somebody comes to us with a story if it's not you know in the immediate area where i live boise idaho like it doesn't necessarily make that much sense for me to travel halfway across the world for a short film with a very low budget right but if we have a producer you know who lives closer to that area it just expands you know the realm of what we're able to do um so yeah, the web series is sort of a combination of you know, these uh, uh, projects run by volunteers, um, but also contract work that we do with other local nonprofits, profits, and you know, sort of partnerships um, with uh, uh, universities and uh, sort of conservation-oriented uh, nonprofit groups documenting the, documenting the research that they're doing.
0: Excellent. I think that's a really nice model because you are able then to, uh, say, draw upon what's already out there and, and give people also the opportunity to get their work seen in the way that they have, um, you know, produced it. Um, and I, I think that's great because, as uh, us say, it gives people an outlet. And, um, and web series can be difficult because a lot of the time you know, I know this from starting up web series that you start these things with all great intentions. And if you've got no budget behind them and you think, well, I'm going to do it in my spare time and make this work, it can be really hard to keep up with it. Um, all of these things take a huge amount of time and yeah, it's very hard then to be jet setting off across the country or the world trying to put these things together. Okay. So let's talk dream projects. All right, we all have a dream project. So uh, what is your dream project? What what would you want to go and film and where would it be?
1: That's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's a bunch, I guess. Um, uh, maybe I'll say this. You know, I in, in the back of my mind for a while, you know, just... Uh, this this is sort of what is sort of uh, pops into my mind first, maybe because we watched Josh Fox's film last night um, about climate change. Um, man, the climate change film is like just so daunting, you know, because it's such it's this such an overarching issue that just affects everything, you know, every aspect of every ecosystem on the planet and every human community on the planet. Um, it's just really hard to sort of wrap your mind around. Um, that issue, and I, I think you know that sort of sentiment was expressed really well in in Josh Fox's new film, um, but you know the, the the piece of the climate change issue that that I haven't seen portrayed in a film yet that that I think would be is interesting to explore is um, sort of delving more into this uh, uh, defeatism component to the issue right and i mean this is you know uh, they touched on this in in um how to let go of the world you know i mean he sort of starts off just by you know talking about how dire the situation is and like you know and and he sort of contemplates like should i just give up on this you know but then he sort of you know has this revelation and says like no i can't give up and like goes off you know all around the world and explores all these different uh sort of really amazing inspiring actions that different people are taking towards you know I mean, these are, like, last-ditch, like, efforts, you know, to try to, like, you know, save these people's islands in the South Pacific from, like, sinking, you know? I mean, it's, 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 it's crazy stuff, right? Um, but, you know, he, he, he doesn't actually truly address that central question that he brings up in the beginning of the film, which is, like, what can we, like, what hope do we really have of averting the most catastrophic effects of climate change at this late stage in the issue um, and I think it would be really interesting to you know find a slate of characters who are planning for the collapse of Western civilization in a very realistic way you know not in the sort of way that you know sort of uh, uh, the apocalypse is sort of portrayed in you know, popular culture as this sort of, you know, science fiction, like, end-of-the-world scenario, like, I think it'd be really interesting to explore, you know, the the uh, sort of the... Um, maybe the perspective that, like, the survivalist community has on climate change. You know, like, I want to see people who are, like, preparing for the apocalypse, but in a way that's realistic and who have this attitude of... You know, like, yeah, a lot of really horrible things are going to happen, but I'm trying to focus on, like, what the world's going to look like after, you know, this catastrophe, whatever that may look like, right? Right.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating because uh, there are uh, lots of people out there who, who prepare for many things and um, it would be, that would be interesting. I'm going to wait and I'm going to press you on that one and, <laughs> and wait to see your film when it comes out. So um, tell me a bit about your role here at the festival this year. This is um, the 39th International Wildlife Film Festival, longest running wildlife film festival anywhere in the world. Um, running, obviously, for 39 years. And um, and you are uh, now... Is this the first year that you've been involved? And, and tell me a bit about your role this year.
1: Sure. So I've, I've had films screening at this festival for the past two years. Um, this year, uh, I don't have a film in the festival, um, but I'm here as um, a festival judge. Um, so basically, the way that the festival... Um, well, like a lot of festivals... Uh, International Wildlife Film Festival gives out a series of awards. So they give out uh, sort of category awards when you submit your film. You know, you select um, from, you know, a slate of categories, and each category, you know, awards sort of a winner like best in that category Um, but then they also have like a best of the festival they have a best short category best editing uh, best cinematography Um, and so those sort of general categories you know best of fest best short uh, cinematography uh, editing um, those uh, the winners of those categories are selected by um, a group of three judges that you know the festival sort of brings in from outside Of the festival itself you know sort of industry experts people with you know sort of different experience in the field of wildlife filmmaking Um, and so yeah I feel super lucky to be here as a festival judge this year Um, it's been definitely an interesting uh, sort of learning process to see like how things work you know sort of behind the scenes at the festival And uh, it's been a lot of fun watching all these amazing films that people submitted to this festival. You know, like you said, the longest running uh, sort of wildlife focused festival in the world. Um, I mean, this is top tier stuff and it's really cool to be able to just, you know, watch all of those films. But I mean, I feel really honored to be like in this position where I'm passing judgment on um, all these really amazing stories that people have put together.
0: And, and it seems appropriate as we're at the uh, the Wildlife Film Festival just to talk a bit about the role of festivals. Um, I know that, uh, you know, they've definitely helped me with my films um, and I'm sure yourself as well. Just, just talk a little bit about the role. How, how important is it for our community of filmmakers or new filmmakers up and coming to get their films into a wildlife film festival? What does that do for them?
1: I mean, I think, I think it does a couple of things, you know, and, and I think when you're... Uh Working to tell a story through a film, especially if it's if you're trying to address you know a particular issue or you have sort of a conservation goal that you want to achieve with your film or with your story, um, you know I, I I do think that it's really important to identify who your target audience is right from the beginning and to tailor your film to that audience towards you know sort of achieving that goal, right. Um, and, you know, a little there is, you know, some potential conflict that comes in there in regards to the film festival circuit, right? Because if you're trying to produce a film, you know, geared towards this, you know, relatively narrow sort of target group, um, then that may, you know, lead you to sort of create this story that, like, maybe isn't a good fit for a festival like IWFF, you know? Um, so, I mean... I think it's more important to have that understanding of who your target audience is. You know who out there has the ability to be inspired and affect the change that is your ultimate goal with the film. I think that's definitely more important than like trying to produce something for a festival that you know will do well in competition at you know a particular festival. Um, but that said. Um, Festivals are great. They're a lot of fun. Um, You know, as a a new filmmaker, it's really, really awesome experience to, like, come to an event like this and be able to network with other filmmakers. Everybody's really open and friendly. You know, you can talk to these filmmakers who've been working in the industry for decades, you know, and just have so much uh, experience and knowledge that... um, is is really helpful as a filmmaker but it's also really inspiring you know um, and there's something to be said for coming to an event like this like IWFF um it's like by after a week of just being engrossed in wildlife films and conservation and you know all these sort of con- you know conversations that happen among you know these sort of top tier wildlife and conservation focused filmmakers it generates lots of interesting ideas and i always walk away from this festival like with all these ideas spinning around in my head and it 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 definitely shapes the direction that that i take my company in wild lens you know i mean a lot of these ideas stew in my head and definitely have an impact on the decisions that i make you know uh, uh as i move forward in you know developing projects and uh, making decisions about like the future direction of, of my company. So, I mean, I think that is uh, the benefit of that, you know, should not be, uh, underestimated, you know, and especially for sort of aspiring filmmakers. Um, you know, I would recommend like, you know, cause it's not, not easy to get a film into a top tier festival, like, you know, like IWFF, um, I mean, I would recommend, you know, coming to one of these festivals as a volunteer. Um, You know, like I know IWFF has a lot of volunteers. I know Jackson Hole. um, There are a lot of folks that volunteer there. Um, I would recommend that as like a first approach, regardless of whether or not you've even made a film yet or regardless of whether or not your film even gets into the festival. You know, um, it's still worth attending one of these events for
0: sure. Absolutely. and You know, what I love about uh, the whole festival scene is not only is there such a diverse range of films to see, uh, everything from shorts, independents, to big blue chip uh, films, but also you're rubbing shoulders with producers and camera operators, editors. It's everyone working on those projects and it's great to be able to swap stories and talk about projects and, and make good friends, which is fantastic. And typically, um, when you start going and doing the festival circuit, you meet a lot of these people over and over again, and um, and that's really important. And you made a really good point about being a volunteer. Um, you know, being a volunteer doesn't cost you anything, right? You don't have to buy a delegate pass, or you know, you, you get to see all the movies for free. Um, fantastic idea, and that that's a great segue into advice. Now. Uh, advice for filmmakers Um, imagine that you know a lot of our audience are um, either thinking of becoming a wildlife filmmaker they're looking for their start uh they're they're looking at what gear to get they're, they're trying to find their way towards their goal of being a wildlife filmmaker really what are the what's the fundamental kind of advice that you can give them if you had to just give a couple of snippets of advice what would that be
1: i'd say two things um uh, first of all, is you know and, and, and I was touching on this earlier, but i 'm going to reiterate it because i, I think it 's really important, which is you know if you 're coming into this um, with a tangible goal to achieve you know i mean I I, I I I guess it depends on like what 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 your true like i mean maybe you just have to ask yourself this question of like why am I interested in this? Like, why do you want to get into wildlife filmmaking? You know, Um, and that just, you know, really thinking hard about that question, I think is going to, um, you know, having a clear understanding of what direction you want to go and like what your ultimate goal that you want to achieve is. Um, And, you know, for me personally, like the conservation goal is the end goal right um, and the film and the storytelling is like the route to towards achieving that end conservation goal um, and so that shapes all of the decisions that I make as a filmmaker um, and as you know uh, uh, you know uh, also in my role as you know helping run this nonprofit. Um, so you got to answer that question you know, you have to answer the question of like, you know, because for it's, that's not going to be the same for everybody. You know, not everybody is making films just to sort of change people's minds or sort of achieve some sort of conservation goal, whatever that is, whether it's sort of political or legislative or whether it's like grassroots and, um, you know, reaching out to this target audience that can like, you know, make some kind of change to benefit uh, a, a conservation issue or an ecosystem or something. Um, you gotta. I mean, you just you just have to know that the answer to that question, you know, <laughs> um, because that's going to shape your style of storytelling, you know. Because I mean, that's sort of the next step is like, what kind of stories do you want to tell? Um, and I think you have to know the answer to that first question before you can think about like, you know, what is this, the, You know what what is the story that you want to tell? Um, you know, it's not to say that. I mean, I don't know. Like for for me. Like, I never even really spent that much time thinking about that first question. Like, it was just a given, because I was coming into this as a biologist, and, you know, I um, I had my story, right? Because I was in the story. Like, I was engrossed in this issue. Like, I knew that was my story, and it was just a given for me right from the beginning that, you know, the end goal was, you know, at least with that first project, was to convince as many hunters as I possibly could to switch to this alternative non lead ammunition. Um, and so that shaped, you know, the direction that that story went in. Um, you know, I guess, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the other advice that I would maybe give is, um, you know, before you start thinking about gear and like setting up shots and all that technical stuff, you, you gotta get something down on paper. You gotta write Something you know, it doesn't have to be the most detailed story outline in the world, but you got to get something down on paper, you know. And and just by going through that process and forcing yourself to write even just a few paragraphs, you know, sort of providing an overview to the story that you ultimately envision making, um, it's going to get that thought process going, and y- you know, you're going to start to think about more angles and like other things you can do. Um, you know, it you it, 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 it's I mean, whatever is like most comfortable for you you know, I mean, even if it's just like stream of consciousness, like ideas, you know, you just got to have something on that page um, so that you can then go back and like hone it and sort of work on it. Um, I, I think it's really, really important to have at least, you know, an early incarnation of your story on paper before you do anything else, before you fundraise, before you shoot anything, before you make any, you know, gear purchasing decisions, any of that
0: stuff. Yeah, I think that's uh, super important. I think as, as filmmakers, we, uh, we see the need to get gear, go out and start filming. And I actually encourage people to do that if they have a camera and they're not sure of what, what uh, route they want to take. Um, I say, go out and film something, you know, go and see what you can do. Um, but it 's very important as well to yeah if you if you know where you 're headed uh, you know then you 're far more focused on the end goal and and you 're going to be moving in the right direction um, but uh going back to the gearless stuff as well, go out and shoot with what what gear you have and hone your skills and then think about you know, buying the right gear for what you're doing. Really important stuff. Matthew, thank you so much for taking time out to uh, chat with us today. Just very quickly remind us where we can find you and your films online. And so uh, we can go along and uh, check you out.
1: Yeah, for sure. You can go to uh, Wild Lens Inc. So that's uh, W-I-L-D-L-E-N-S-I-N-C dot org. Um, And yeah, you can find information on all our films and on the web series I was on Conservation. Um, It's all there on the website.
0: Fantastic. Thanks again, Matthew. And um, I'll probably let you get back to your judging now, right? Have you still got films to judge or are you are you done now?
1: We're done. We did our deliberation yesterday. So uh, decisions are made.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Thanks again. Yep. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, then please leave a rating and a comment. And remember to subscribe to keep up to date with the series. You can find out more information on wildlife filmmaking at masterwildlifefilmmaking.com where you'll find valuable free resources like downloadable reports and video tutorials. Thanks for listening.